Anyway, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We are going to almost finish this chapter today. I say almost because the last verse in my mind goes with chapter 13. So um, we're going to look at verses 20 through 24 today. We'll look at 25 next week. Uh, while you're turning there, and if any of the kids are still finding bingo pictures, I, I just I want to tell you what this week's message is going to look like. Um, I was told that Roman Candle wasn't so great last week uh, by a very special person to me, and so uh, we're <laughs> and so we are we're definitely uh, going to go back to the typical outline format for this week. But today's text is actually a really short narrative about uh, what happens to be a really awful king. And, uh, and why it happens to him. And since it's so short, rather than a, a typical expository sermon, as you probably know, that's what I normally preach, uh, or at least a very textually based one, I felt led to do a topical message based on the standout concept in this story. And there's, and there's a lot of really deep stuff to this concept. And so I really, I'm just going to ask you to stick with me. I think you're going you're gonna to find it's worth it. Um, there's a lot of value in this passage. Um, so what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to read through these five verses and then I'm going to come back and take it a piece at a time. But, but just want you to bear in mind, right before this, Peter was sprung from prison. He got sprung from the joint, right? He got sprung from prison by an angel. Okay, remember that's, that's what happened just a few verses ago. Okay, and at the end of that story, after having the guards executed for losing their prisoner, then Herod goes to Caesarea and that's where we pick up today. Uh, by the way, I incorrectly stated last week that this Herod was the, grand, uh, was the son of Herod the Great, the one who uh, tried to have Jesus killed when he was an infant. It's actually his grandson, okay? He's Herod Agrippa I. He's the father of the King Agrippa that we see later in Acts 25 and 26. It's a really convoluted, there's lots of Herods, okay? Um, Herod also, um, he, was, he was, this Herod was the nephew of Herod the Tetrarch, who was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Uh, so basically, pretty much everyone named Herod in the Bible is a terrible person. So just know that. Uh, and anyway, our passage today, uh, it's unusual in the book of Acts because it goes outside the normal cast of characters like the apostles. Uh, this particular story is mainly about something that happened in the secular world at the time that, that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. So, um, so I'm, I'm going to read this. You can just read it along with me. You don't have to stand up today or anything. Just, just, keep, you know, just keep your eyes up there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's pretty intense. So let's pray before we dive in. Father God, we just ask in Jesus' name that you will help us to be a good soil. It's, it's my, my consistent prayer, uh, Lord, that, that we hear as we hear the word, that we will uh, be receptive and that it will take root and bear fruit. And Father God, I pray for those that are at home. Uh, for those who are, uh, who would be here if they could be here today um, safely, we ask, Father, that you uh, will help each person um, to be able to t take something from this, and, and that it will be uh, that it will ruminate. You know, they'll they'll ruminate on it. That, that it will sit there and and continue to pop up throughout the week, Father, because this really 
this is what we're here for, is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And, and really, we, we need to, to recognize the importance of realizing your glory. So help us to, to be able to do that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, Herod went down to Caesarea. He was looking for a soul to steal, right? Anyway, sorry. Um, he went down to Caesarea, which is right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And like most seaports, it was a really big commerce hub, okay? Like if you go down to, uh, to New Orleans or to Houston, you'll see, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of commercial activity that goes on there. And last week, we read that Herod went to Capernaum, uh, sorry, to Caesarea. I don't know why I wrote Capernaum. And it sounded kind of like he was on vacation, um, you know, because you, you think, oh, he's going down to this city. But it, but it, it wasn't like that at all. That he, was, he was not there on, on pleasure. He was there for business. And, uh, and Luke doesn't really get into details, but he does, he does tell us, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the reason for this isn't mentioned, but historically it was probably because Tyre and Sidon were both coastal cities. They were a little further north. Okay, and, and they were probably commercial competition. And the, the Greek word that's translated was angry is more along the lines of was at war. <laughs> it's probably an idiom, um, like, like we might say he was out for blood, you know, that type of thing. But whatever the case may be, Herod was not happy. So the people of Tyre and Sidon got worried, and they, they wanted to placate him. Okay, and Luke continues, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, um, side note, that would be a great name for a transformer in my mind. Blastus. You know, it just sounds kind of neat. If any of you young people, if you get married one day, uh, I, will, I will personally, literally pay you money to legally name your child Blastus. Okay? And terms and conditions apply. I'm just kidding. But, but I'm, I'm not kidding. I would pay you money. Anyway, back to the story. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay, so Judea was, was apparently a really large exporter of grain, and, and the coastal cities would buy grain from them. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a coastal city recently, but um, there's typically not a whole lot of farmland there. Um, it's, it's actually a little different when you go down south of Houston toward Galveston. There is some farmland, but um, that's not really their main thing. And so they needed the wheat and the, the other grains that Judea could provide and so they wanted to do whatever they could to make Herod happy. And so that included kissing up to his chamberlain. Later, it resorted to flattery. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. So anyway, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Now, I, I guess that Herod decided he wanted to be seen as a great benevolent king. You know, and so, so he writes a speech, he gets all dressed up, and then he comes out before the people of Tyre and Sidon so he can show them, you know, how, how tough but fair he is or whatever. And the people, they were either very impressed or more likely they were very eager to, to win him over so they could eat again, right? And so, so Luke says, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. That's a bit much, don't you think? It's a little bit, a uh, little bit going over, like overselling it. But the thing is, that's the equivalent of worship. To say something like that, that, that that's that's like worshiping and, and to take honor that only the Creator Himself deserves and treat it as nothing more than a commodity to lavish on a fallen creature. That's dangerous. And we will definitely come back to that concept. 
But for now, let's talk about what happened to King Herod. Luke writes, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Can anybody else agree that that's truly disgusting? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's gross. That, and you never know, the Bible rarely sh like shies away from, from really awful details. You know, there's some stuff in there that, that if they made a movie, it would definitely be rated R, you know? And, and this is just one of those things, it's, it, it's, it's awful, it's gross. By the way, if you're wondering about the timeline, um, it appears that God's angel struck Herod down right then and there, but, but his actual death took some time because it happened from the inside out. And this interpretation not only makes sense, it's also backed up by secular history. Have any of you ever heard of um, Josephus Flavius? Maybe some of us have. Uh, he was a first century historian. He wrote uh, The Antiquities of the Jews, which was uh, just multiple uh, annals of, of works. And it was, it was kind of like the first century Time Life series, if you're old enough to remember what that is. Um, and, and so this is, this is excerpted from his record of what happened to Herod. Okay, And this fleshes out Luke's very condensed version. As Herod gave his speech, Josephus wrote, And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to moral nature, or mortal nature, sorry. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. This is from Antiquities, book 19. Okay? So apparently the Lord's angel struck Herod with a horrific parasite infestation, and then he died a slow and agonizing death over the next five days. Now, for the sake of those of you with delicate constitutions, <laughs> like Miss Terry, the nurse, <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail, um, but it would have been a very incredibly unpleasant way to go. Um, we can only hope he repented on his deathbed. Now, this story is pretty awful. For sure. But one question that it raises in my mind is what can we learn from this episode in the book of Acts? Kind of a weird story, right? And, and I want to share, share this quick thought. This is not part of your, your outline, but it's a bonus. Okay, so just let me encourage you to think on this. Maybe write it down. Uh, there's, there's a blank spot on the back of your bulletin insert. God is not just involved in what happens in religious life. He is involved in everything that happens in the world. Scripture tells us creation is not only made by, but sustained by Christ. That, that includes national affairs. That includes what the things that happen in secular culture. And I think that's important because, you know, we sometimes we get really concerned about the things that are happening in the world. And we forget that God is in charge of all of it, right? The whole thing. He's involved with what happens with, with governments and nations, not just the church. And that, that would be, or that should be, I, I ought to say, a great source of comfort for us. You know, even if we don't understand why he either causes or allowses, allowses, <laughs> allows some of the things that happen in the world. Anyway, um, we're going to shift focus. You may have noticed earlier we skipped over a pretty important part of this sentence. 
I'm going to read it again with a highlighted portion. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last because he did not give God the glory. You know, I probably read Luke's record of this dozens of times, but this past week, as I was preparing to preach on it, something stuck out to me. My mind did not want to let go of it. God struck Herod down because he accepted glory, essentially, again, worship that belongs to God alone. And while that totally makes sense, can we just take a quick inventory of Herod's recent past? I mean, this is, this is a guy who had just executed James, the brother of John, who was a pillar of the early church, and he had just arrested Peter to put him to death as well. Now, now, call me crazy, but don't you think that that would be a good enough reason for God to strike him down? I mean, just, just think about that. Of course, we believe that things that happen are a part of God's plan, and, and he used that persecution to spread the faith. But you know what? With some of the shady stuff that Herod has done, does it seem odd that Luke would mention that his death was a result of not giving God the glory? I think one of the biggest takeaways from this text is that we don't realize how big of a deal it is that God gets all the glory. Scripture says, that he is a jealous God. Jealous is his name. He is jealous for his name. God is jealous for his own glory. By the way, the difference between envy and jealousy, just in case you've ever wondered, is envy is desiring something that does not belong to us. Jealousy is having a passion for something that does belong to us. And so I, I want to make that very clear. So if if someone is dating someone and that person is flirting with someone else, what they're feeling is envy. That person does not belong to you. But husbands, if another man is flirting with your wife, you have every right to be jealous because you are jealous in the same way that God is jealous for his church. That's not envy. Your wife belongs to you and you belong to her. You are one flesh. So when God is jealous, that is not a sin. That's a good thing. That is a good thing that God is jealous for his name and for his glory and for his people. I'm going to very quickly read a few passages that relate to God's glory. And, and I want to encourage you uh, to, to focus with me for just a moment. Now, if you want to see these later, they're listed in that additional resources at the bottom of your bulletin insert. Okay. First, when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh in the temple in chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim, these giant flying dragons, are calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is the fullness of His glory. See, everything that God has made serves to glorify Him, and it is only right and appropriate that He, he receives all the glory because He deserves it. He is the only one worthy. As He says later in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. I, I give my glory to no other. It's chapter 48, excuse me, 42, verse 8. And in the next chapter, 43, I think it's verse 7, 
the Lord says that, listen, this is important because this applies to you and me. The Lord says that everyone who is called by his name is created for his glory. I mean, that, that's you and me, friends. That's why we're here. That's why we are created and called. But we've all completely messed that up, of course. And Romans 3.23 says, we all have now, this word, it says sinned and falls short, but that's the infinitive tense in Greek, meaning continually. We have all sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. See, none of us, we're not capable of living up to our, our original created purpose because we're sinful. And thus, God glorified himself by sending the second person of the triune Godhead as our example, but more importantly, our Savior. John 1 refers to Jesus saying, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's awesome. <laughs> and what is that glory like? The author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As if that wasn't enough. He then references the atonement and ascension, saying, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so, so Jesus was an exact representation of the person and character of the Father, as well as being glorified, it says, in his death for the sin of mankind, and glorified again in his resurrection from the dead. And now he's in heaven with the Father. And as it says in Philippians 2, Paul wrote this. He says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus did, all who come to him in repentant faith will live eternally in the new heaven and the new earth with him, residing in the new holy city which is lit by none other than God's glory. As Revelation 21 tells us, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God is all throughout Scripture, and it matters. It matters. God is jealous for His glory because every aspect of, of, of creation and of redemption from start to finish is a reflection of who he is and what he has done. So maybe it's clearer now why he struck Herod dead for accepting worship that was only befitting the God of the universe. So then that, that, that raises a question that's been asked so many times over the millennia, and, and it's, it, it's fine, it's a valid question. Since humility is such an important part of greatness, why is it okay for God to have such a high view of himself? And I'll tell you, I mean, you could preach a sermon series probably on that very thing, and I, and I might preach at least one sermon on it someday, but, but here's the short answer, okay? And then we'll get into the topic that I think God's preparing us for. God demands the glory because God deserves the glory. No one else and nothing else in creation, by default, is the creator of all things. No one else and nothing else 
is morally perfect. No one else and nothing else is omnipotent, nor omnipresent, nor omniscient, nor omnibenevolent. It's all-powerful, everywhere at once, knows everything, and only good. Okay, but, but, but why does it matter to God whether we realize that or not? Well, I mean, what, I mean sh- shouldn't he be above caring what his creations think? Well, sure, but, but here's the thing. God knows that we finite creatures are most blessed when we recognize all of this. We are blessed by knowing who God is and what he has done. By understanding why he deserves this glory. There's no, there's no greater joy than knowing God. And that's why this matters so much. We'll discover why shortly. Uh, so, so back to the basics. What is this story ultimately about? I think it teaches us the importance of giving glory to God. Friends, listen, we offend God's glory when we don't give him the credit he deserves. And that, that's the thesis statement for this message, to God be the glory, not to us. I realized, I think it was Friday, as I was finishing up the manuscript, I, I emailed Everett and said, man, we should have used not to us. I would missed a perfect opportunity for that song <laughs> because it just, it fits. Not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, be the glory, but to him alone. So then, if we agree that God deserves glory, then, then we can spend the balance of our time today training our minds to see it so that we can give him the glory that he deserves. And we're going to look at three categories, okay? Every sub-point in these categories has a scripture to back it up. And I'm going to give you that scripture. So none of this is purely conjecture. This is all supported by the word, okay? First, God gives, uh, excuse me, God deserves the glory for blessings that he gives us. God deserves the glory for blessings that he gives to us. And I realize it's a really broad category, okay? So we're going to break it down um, into some, some sub-points in just a moment. Has anybody ever seen the movie Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart? A few of you? Okay. It's an, old, uh, it's an old movie. Now, Pastor Allen used it as a reference one time, and it really it stuck in my head. There's this one scene where uh, a family is gathered around the table, and Jimmy Stewart's the dad. I think his name was Charlie Anderson. Um, So he's the father of this house, and he prays, and he says this, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. That is not a very sincere-sounding prayer, is it? You know, Jimmy's character mentions everything that they did to get that meal. But he forgets that man sows and waters, but God gives the growth. Without God's common graces, we would never have anything. By common grace, uh, I mean those gifts which exist in the natural world to provide for people, whether they trust in the Lord or not. You know, the, the seasons, the dirt, the sun and rain. Jesus himself Referring to the Father, says he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That, that means God gives certain gifts to everybody. 
And they're gifts without which none of our effort would ever bear anything. You know, without, without light and water, without soil and seed, our work would be pointless. So, you know, if you're ever tempted to, you know, pat yourself on the back uh, for where you are in life, just bear in mind, you would not be there apart from God's favor, irrespective of how hard you've worked, okay? Now, God uses our work. I'm not saying that, that he doesn't. He uses our work, okay? And, and you do get ahead in your work by working hard. We all understand that, but we still, we need his common grace every moment of every day. Now still, I mean, one could argue that maybe they've gotten where they are by working hard to hone specific skills. Okay, that's probably true, but where did those skills originate? You know, God is also the giver of our talents by which he is to be glorified. Those of us that are reading the Bible app, the Old Testament, um, it's been an exodus this past week. We might remember that God gave Moses some almost painfully detailed instructions on how to build the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle, and all, and all the fancy furniture, you know, that went in it. And, and what, he specifically gifted a guy named Bezalel and somebody else named Aholiab, which I, I guess was his helper, to be able to craft the tabernacle according to God's will. And I remember hearing this guy, uh, he may still be an atheist, I don't know, at the time, he, he was certainly a non-believer, and he was complaining, he said, God shouldn't get any credit for my skill on guitar, because he'd worked really hard, you know, to get where he was, and, and to be as good as he was, and my response to him, and I stand by it, was, yes, but who gave you fingers, and the dexterity to play? I mean, y'all, e even the talents that we work so hard to perfect as best we can, those abilities come from God. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not? You know, I, I think that's a great question. And as, as good as we may be at something, we can never claim ultimate credit for it because even our skills are a gift from God. Our talents are a gift from God. And speaking of, of gifts from God, um, he deserves all the glory for our spiritual gifts, Right? I mean, this seems like it, it ought to be a no-brainer, like super obvious, because our gifts are called spiritual gifts. But how often do people bask in the credit for a gift that God has given? I feel like church culture over the years has, has kind of tended to glorify, I don't mean our church, you know, I'm just saying in, in general, the church seems to, to get to the place where it glorifies people that have great God-given abilities to, to preach engagingly or to lead worship with great passion or even perform miracles through prayer and the, lay, the laying on of hands. You know, and when that stuff is real, because a lot of times it's not, but when that stuff is real, that power is not inherent to that person. It is a gift from God. They're nothing more than a vessel for God to use. And, and they, and that, and that means we, need to recognize that. Again, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul breaks it down for us. He says, now you are members of the body of Christ. Well, we've talked about it quite a bit recently, right? And, and, and here's to our point for today. He says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And again, all of these gifts which aid in the spreading of the gospel and the edification of the church, they're appointed by God. 
We don't go to Walmart and pick our spiritual gifts. God gives them to people. And they're for his glory, not our glory. So whenever we start acting like, like our gift is about us, we are encroaching on territory that's not ours. Now, with regard to blessings, what gift do we receive as believers in Christ that we perhaps deserve the least? We talked about it in Sunday school. Uh, that's part of it, yeah. Salvation. If you deserve salvation, raise your hand. Okay, good. All right, hey, hey. <laughs> I guess we could argue that we're, we're equally unworthy of the sacrifice of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but those are so closely tied to salvation, I'm just going to just focus on the broader concept. Okay, Our salvation church is entirely to the glory of God and not to us. You know, Jonathan Edwards, he was a great Puritan preacher and author. He once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. I think he's right. And I know that statement is a toe stomper for anybody that, that believes, you know, oh, I'm a good person. And God will accept me because I'm good. But, but the gospel very clearly teaches that salvation is a free gift, which we, we, we've not only received, uh, I mean, sorry, which, which we receive through faith and not by anything we could do or not, not by anything we could ever do or have ever done. In Ephesians 2, Paul wrote, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not by works. He says it's a gift of God, not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. I probably messed it up a little bit, but that's okay. That's pretty black and white. So we must give God the glory for every blessing in our lives, and most importantly, for the blessing of the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Next, God must also receive the glory for our circumstances. So we have our blessings, we have our circumstances. Versus that, you know, that uh, nebulous concept of luck. You know, it always irks me a little bit, especially if I accidentally say it, <laughs> when I hear a Christian say something about luck. Um, you know, listen, people, luck doesn't exist, okay? It's not real. God is too big to leave anything up to chance. Things that happen in our lives happen because God either causes or allows them. Those are the only two options. And this applies both to the circumstances that we would consider good and also the less desirable circumstances that we may find ourselves in. You know, God must be glorified in both. And when, when we're experiencing great evidence of his favor at work, that's awesome. We're reminded that, that God preserves the lives of his saints. Scripture says, he delivers us from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. You know, in, in these circumstances, when awesome things are happening in our lives, we certainly shouldn't say, man, I'm so lucky. We ought to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name, the psalmist said. What about those situations that seem bad? At least to us. They seem bad. They feel bad in the moments. In those cases, we still give glory to God. Because He is doing something in us. He's refining us in the fire to remove our impurities. You know, one of the hardest scriptures for many people to remember, <laughs> or, or maybe it's the hardest for us to wrap our brains around, is the second verse of James' epistle. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials 
of various kinds. You know, that's not normally how we see adversity, is it? But James goes on to explain why. For we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So guys, in all circumstances, we should give God glory. Because we know, we know that he's going to use them to sanctify us and to further the cause of the kingdom. So so we should give glory, glory to God for all of our blessings all of our circumstances, but let's not forget to glorify him for his character, for who he is. Because everything we receive from God, it truly is because of his character. It's a result of his character, and he deserves glory for who he is just as much, if not more so, as he deserves glory for what he does. So first, we should give him glory for his goodness. You know, his love, his mercy, his grace. Because without this aspect of his character, he would simply have given us what we all deserve for our sins, which is eternal separation from him in hell. That's what we deserve. If it weren't for his goodness, his love, he would have just let us have what we deserve instead of forgiving us. But see, God is good. And in his goodness is our salvation. David wrote, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's awesome. Right? That's worth glorifying God for. Amen? So let's remember, though, he doesn't just gloss over our sins, you know, or kind of sweep them under a rug, because his holiness would not allow that. Remember, God's nature is completely other from all of creation, okay? And he deserves glory for that too because, guys, in his holiness, God is perfectly righteous. That means he's morally flawless, okay? And because his holiness also demands perfect justice, sin can't be ignored. Sin must be punished. And that's why he he could not allow us to go to heaven without the price for our sin being paid. And so in his great love, God chose to send his son to die, and he paid the price himself. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. By the way, for for anyone who might be tempted to wish that, that, that God wasn't such a stickler about punishing sin, bear in mind, That holiness, his holiness, means he's also going to set everything right one day. Those who continue to reject his loving kindness will be dealt with. And those who've submitted to him will be perfected forever. This is promised in scripture. I think it's going to be awesome. You know, Psalm 97 states, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. As harsh as that may seem, sin must be punished in order to be eradicated. And glory to God that one day sin is going to cease and those who are in Christ will reign with him forever in robes of white. We'll be able to do that because his blood paid for sin. And it will be gone. 
There's another aspect of his character for which he deserves glory, and that is his wisdom. I mean, if God was just good or holy, but he lacked the understanding and discernment that were required to utilize that goodness, we wouldn't have nearly as much reason to worship him. But because God is capable of doing what is best for our ultimate good, we we not only glorify him, but we also trust in him. We can bust out in praise like Paul does in Romans 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. You know, the more that that we get to know and experience God in our lives, the more we're going to recognize his wisdom because he'll be shaping our minds to reflect his. As we're being sanctified, we see the wisdom in God's will. You know, I think most of our, our collective life suffers from that hindsight is twenty twenty rule, right? I mean, we've all experienced that, even us young folks. Why are you nodding so hard, Shannon? <laughs> As we look back, though, we can see the Lord at work. We can see the Lord at work, and we can thank Him, and we can glorify His name for setting up the perfect path that has us where we presently are. And finally, we give God the glory for his sovereignty, meaning his absolute power and capability to accomplish his own ends, which are good, holy, and wise. Without the power to accomplish his will, God wouldn't be all that different from the character Cassandra in Greek mythology. I don't know if you remember her. She always, she had a curse where she always knew when a tragedy was coming, but she could never do anything to stop it. Nobody would ever believe her. You know, God is capable of doing whatever is necessary to accomplish his will. He has that ability. He has that power. Whatever his end goal is, he can bring it about. And I love how the prophet Jeremiah, he was totally overcome by the greatness of God. And he cried out, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I mean, honestly, church, would we want a God that didn't have all four of these attributes? Would you want a God that was all-powerful but wasn't good? Or a God that was perfectly holy but foolish? I'm thankful that God's word teaches us that his character is good and holy and wise and sovereign because we can only really fully, completely trust a God like that. And only a God like that is deserving of all the glory. To God be the glory. Okay, last sentence. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It's the last sentence in that passage, not my last, sorry. Um, (laughs) Some of you are like, oh good, I grabbed my stuff. No. Um, the word of God increased and multiplied. That, that's a pretty common sentence in the book of Acts, have you noticed? You know, in spite of what's going on in the world, whether, whether the church is, is able to shine unmolested, or if it's, it's, whether it's in the trials of persecution, when God's people are doing what we're supposed to do, God is glorified and his word is multiplied. Those two things go hand in hand. So friends, that's our job. That, that is what we are called to do. No, no matter what's happening in society, no matter what 
things are going on in Washington, D.C., or even in our local government, let's give God glory, both for our blessings and for our circumstances, whether they're pleasant or not. And let's rejoice in God's goodness, in God's holiness, in God's wisdom, in God's power, because that's the way that he expands the borders of his kingdom is when we glorify him. People see that. By the way, if you're not a, a part of the kingdom yet, um, you have an opportunity today. Um, God's kingdom is big, it's ever-growing. Um, but he does make some demands. <laughs> he says, believe on me. Put your faith in me. And then scripture goes on to tell us what that, what that looks like, what the fruit of faith is. Faith is the root. But it bears fruit of obedience. It bears fruit of coming forward and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized by immersion as the word teaches. It, it teaches that we are to walk in obedience and faithfulness to Christ. And this morning, if you're a person that has not yet taken these steps, then I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Because that is God's will for you. And as you grow in him, you'll, you'll know more of that. So um, I'm going to wrap up with that.